can't join them, beat them. This is the Blackwater Eva Coast. Unfortunately, being a brilliant-minded scientist and having a profound sense of self-preservation do not often coincide. My esteemed peers are few and far between, and often no longer among the living. Some of you are part of this surviving minority. The others, of course, are primarily of the evil overlord variety, which does tend to defend itself fairly well. Blackwater Castle has received no shortage of messages asking where I have been for the past several weeks. Some rumor of odd events in the Highlands may have reached you, and the explanation for them will follow shortly. Likewise, those of you who keep an eye on the Grey Stripe and the Intrepid League shall find out what actually happened on that railway journey from London which yielded such confusing reports, though that part of the tale will have to wait until another time. First, the opening salvo of the running battle, which has long kept me incommunicado. The biographer Alistair Munro came to my attention when I asked Robertson to gather a bit more information on the Grey Stripe, leading up to the incident with the Wyvern. This particular gentleman was notorious for his collection of devices. He never displayed them, and only certain guests were ever permitted to see even part of his private collection. That is, of course, where the stories began. Rumors tell of everything from automatons already aged 100 years or more, to the tools of medieval torture, to flameless torches, and keys to portals leading to new and bizarre dimensions. One of the more realistic tales I had come across claimed that one of the founding members of the Grey Stripe had been so inspired after seeing just a small part of Monroe's collection that he proceeded to create the organization. My colleague's family had been placed in charge of the caretaking of the biographer's home as an honorary recognition of his contributions to the Grey Stripe's cause, a cause which I still cannot pin down to summarize for you, despite all my efforts. They really are a confusing lot. Perhaps their own confusion is why it was so simple to infiltrate their ranks a second time. I was studying the notes extracted from Monroe's biography of one Athanasius Kircher when McThomas brought me the letter from the Grey Stripe agent. I had sent an inquiry some days before, assuming the role of a member of their letter group, and requesting to stay with the agent's family on my journey to St. Kilda, specifically Herta, on the westernmost fringe of the Outer Hebrides. The tiny island is running out of people rather rapidly, you see. In fact, I predict that the local populace won't last even another generation. Still, the island held something that I wished to acquire, and with the visit to the tower house in which our esteemed biographer once resided secured, my journey would serve a dual purpose. The response to my inquiry was as I expected. The lady of the house would be glad to host me for as long as I desired. There are a pair of reasons I garnered an invitation from the landlady as opposed to paying them a chance visit on my way north. One, I would need time to find what I sought within the collection, and two, Tower houses are quite impenetrable when they want to be. My own estate began as something akin to a tower house once upon a time. Since then, I have added to the original structure significantly to suit my needs. My journey to the tower house was relatively uneventful. Shaking off any followers that might fancy a tete-a-tete -tete outside of my regular territory was easy enough. 
Over McThomas's unvoiced but clearly communicated objections, I made the journey alone. He has, you see, observed my lack of self-preservation instinct uh, several times before. Instead, my usual entourage became a diversion, as they were sent to Edinburgh to take care of several things for the Daedalus project. Anyone attempting to follow me there would have to settle for witnessing a series of bland commercial transactions. Besides, there were aspects of this journey I wanted to keep to myself. I had had Marie stitch some gears onto a grey travelling cloak of mine, though it pained me to see the perfectly good cloak ruined and the gears wasted. Ah well, disguise comes at a price, I suppose. A large pocket was also installed in the cloak, so that the item I hoped to acquire would be able to lie flat across my back, unnoticed. I arrived in the early afternoon. The tower house reigns over the nearby landscape, so I was sure news of my arrival preceded me. Typically, in their simplest form, tower houses are composed of a courtyard adjoining a crenellated tower, and not much else. The walls of this one had been extended somewhat, effectively creating an outer and an inner courtyard. In the outer courtyard, I was greeted by shrieking children. Two boys. They ran in front of the carriage, forcing my driver to halt rather abruptly. A moment later, they were clamoring at my door. Did you bring a gadget? One boy asked while the other interrupted him with a shrill, I want to see. Now, boys, you won't be seeing anything with you shouting at the gentleman like that. A woman, the landlady, I presumed, was approaching, and the boys retreated a short distance away. She apologized for the boys' rudeness and explained that her husband's colleagues usually brought small devices for the boys to play with. As she shooed them back toward the house, they complained, as children often do, about their disappointment. I said something vague about finding trinkets for them on my return journey, and the woman beamed. That out of the way, I waited as long as politeness dictated before asking about the collection and potentially examining it during my stay. Her response was frustratingly vague. When I pressed her, she said, perhaps on the return journey. And there it was. My price of entry to the infamous collection would be a trinket for two schoolboys. That is little more frustrating than being within arm's reach of success, only to fail to get a clear enough view of the thing to actually seize hold of it. Such was my lot during my stay with this family. My hostess presented me with textbook hospitality, the kind of hospitality one tends to receive when one is a complete stranger. I cannot say I blame her. Her offspring, on the other hand, still have a thing or two to learn about the values of privacy. Despite being shooed away repeatedly by both mother and maid, the boys returned to pester me within minutes each and every time. There was no such thing as a moment to slip up the last flight of stairs to the elusive third story, or even to shake the two pair of curious eyes that followed me everywhere. I resigned myself to wait. I can be patient, if I must, and reading in the study was as good a way to pass the time as I waited for these children to grow bored of me as any. After a long while, the older boy left. More accurately, a young girl arrived, and he scurried off in pursuit. At least he has some sense. The younger boy, though. No matter what I did, the imp followed me around, preventing me from infiltrating the private collection. Even after a great to-do about bedtimes and going to sleep, the youngling snuck out of his room and watched me. Eventually, I was forced to admit defeat. 
The next morning, I announced that I would take my leave to continue my journey north. I packed my things and continued on my merry way. At least, that is the impression I let them have. My journey, westward, to the St. Kildan archipelago was spent fashioning a puzzle knot for the boys out of pieces of wood and leather straps. It is not often that small mechanical devices are not themselves the key to the hidden chamber. Perhaps this crude contraption would suffice to entertain the boys for a while, and, more importantly, suffice to please their mother and convince her to let me see the collection. By the time I had reached the steamboat, I had had ample time to work on this project. However, St. Kilda is on the margins of the world, the last bit of land between Scotland and America, and as such I had hours on board the small ship to look forward to. So I set about making improvements to my puzzle. The sun still shone brightly, but it was cold and windy, and there I sat, genius of clockwork and mechanism, hunched on a small bench on the dirty deck, filing and refining a wooden toy, if perhaps not the usual sort. When we had nearly reached our destination, a thick fog rolled in around the ship. Visibility was down to a mere stone's throw in a few short minutes, and a bone-deep chill settled on the ship and its passengers. Then there came a light, winking at us in the indeterminate distance. "'Is that the island?' I asked a deckhand, who happened to be standing nearby. Is what the island? We won't reach the island for another few minutes yet. Then what is that? I pointed at the glowing light, now pulsing directly ahead of us. Another boat? If so, we shall alter course immediately. The deckhand squinted and shook his head. I don't see nothing. I could not hide my astonishment. The light was bright and directly ahead of us, and he did not see it. I rushed to the prow of the boat, a tight knot in my stomach making me feel ill. The idea of crashing into something in the fog and sinking. The water here is always cold. Another light joined the first, then another. They bobbed and floated, vaguely dancing around one another, just too far into the fog to make out what they were. I called out to another one of the crew, but he seemed not to hear me. Then, even more alarming, I felt the urge to climb over the railing. I gripped the icy metal with my bare hands, the biting cold and anchor to reality. Suddenly, out of the gloom, loomed a rocky crag, a tiny island, little more than a pile of rocks reaching out of the eerie, silent sea. I shouted to the crew again, unable to tear my eyes away, but my voice sounded thin and weak, even to me. Was I the only one to see this thing? to realize the danger that we were all in. The light floated right up to me, inches from my face, more blinding than it had any right to be. When it dimmed again, or floated farther from me once more, I could not tell you, the rocky spur had passed us, or rather, we it. Sound returned to the world as the fog dissipated unnaturally quickly. The witless deckhand from before was at my elbow, telling me it would be best if I took my seat again. Explain to me how one man can see an island and another cannot, I demanded. I don't know what you are on about, sir, but we'll be reaching the island shortly. Further questioning would only leave me looking and sounding a fool. So I dropped the matter and resumed my whittling on the puzzle knot, decidedly perturbed. We anchored in the same small bay I remembered, the same green and grey cliffs rising to towers on either side. 
the stone village seemed unchanged, at least from this distance. The other passengers and I were rowed to the dock. I left the welcome committee behind as quickly as I was able. The inhabitants of the tiny island are starved for information about the rest of the world, and especially the younger generation sought it out whenever possible. My goal was one of the stone storage huts farther up the slope. I had just managed to clear the stone huts and with them the people, blessedly few though there were nowadays, when I found myself targeted by several overprotective seabirds. I pressed on and soon reached my destination, or so I thought. The storage hut was not where I remembered it. Can I help you? A man, perhaps fifty, hauled himself up the last of a slope that quickly dropped off in a treacherous-looking cliff face and joined me at the top. He had several seabirds slung over his shoulder and what looked like a crude fishing pole in his hand. The end of the line featured not a hook, but a small noose. I'm looking for a cleat. I remember one near here. The man looked at me quite strangely. I know you, he finally said. No, no, I do. I remember you from when I was just a boy. But that can't be. You look just the same as you did then. Or was it your father that visited us, what, forty years ago? I was but twelve at the time. He went on for a while, reminiscing about the trouble he got into skipping just one of the church services the entire population was expected to attend during the rule of a man called Mackay. My visit must have been more recent, I insisted, but I could tell that the man did not believe me. To be fair, I did not believe me either. This was Neil Gillies, the very same who had shown me his favorite spot to hide his most precious secrets. You were looking to hide something, something important. He stood there and scratched his head for a moment, then said, Fine, I'll show you where you hid it, or your father, whoever it was. Neil climbed higher up the ridge, quick and agile with practice ease. I kept up with him, barely, though I trod a good deal more clumsily than he. You made me swear never to look at it. Said it was dangerous to know it was even there. He trudged on ahead of me, suddenly a sullen twelve-year-old boy again. I never did look at it. Honest, I didn't. Something about the way he said it made me believe him. Have there been occurrences since I hid it here? Lights? Sudden fogs? Neil shook his head. It's almost always foggy here. Rocks rearing from the sea? Neil shook his head, then stopped remembering. Well... If it's a single rock, it might be Rockabara, though that's been around for centuries. It's a herald of the end of the world, you know. When Rockabara returns, the world will be destroyed. So, you better hope it wasn't the missing island you saw, or your world might be ending. There was a roguish twinkle in his eye now, a child in the know of a prank that was afoot. I ignored his predictions of doom and asked if we were nearly there. The island is only so large. He stood aside and gestured for me to pass with a flourish. The cleat was tucked away behind a small bluff. A pile of debris at its door betrayed that it had not been opened in years. It opened with some difficulty and much scraping, as it had the first time. Behind it, off to the right, in the shadows, was a package I could barely remember. I picked up the square case. My hand tingled as I did so. Does it truly contain as much power as I had originally feared? Are you going to open it? Neil asked, too curious for his own good. I shook my head. No, Neil. Too dangerous. Too exposed. The piece would need a lab for analysis. 
Neil looked taken aback, and it occurred to me that we had not made our introductions this time around. He seemed to shrug it off, though, and mumbled, Don't know what I was expecting. He busied himself with checking the birds tied to his pack. Point me in the direction of the fastest way back to the docks, and I will get this far away from you and your home. I apologize for making you its keeper all those years ago. My apologies, as you may know, are rare, but this one was sincere. I was suddenly eager to get off the island, loath to carry the thing for long which had brought me such dangerous attention the last time I held it. I bribed the ferryman and the steamer captain into returning to the mainland immediately. The rest of the passengers would enjoy a lightly more extended visit to the remote island than they had perhaps planned on. They cut it down, and where the pitch-black aisles of forest night had hid eternal things, they scaled the sky with towers and marble piles to make a city for their revelings. White and amazing to the lands around, that wondrous wealth of domes and turrets rose, crystal and ivory, sublimely crowned with pinnacles that bore unmelting snows. And through its halls the pipe and sistrum rang, while wine and riot brought their scarlet stains. Never a voice of elder marvels sang, nor any eye called up the hills and plains. Thus down the years, till on one purple night, a drunken minstrel in his careless verse spoke the vile words that should not see the light, and stirred the shadows of an ancient curse. Forests may fall, but not the dusk they shield. So on the spot where that proud city stood, the shuddering dawn no single stone revealed, but fled the blackness of a primal wood. The return journey was blessedly uneventful, with no sudden fogs or forms looming out of it in the half-darkness, nor mysterious lights of any kind. Back on the mainland, I found my driver, in a pub, of course, and had him ready the horses. As we finally left the town, the weather turned foul. I had intended to reach the residence of the grey-striped family before sundown, but at this rate we were more likely to break an axle in the rapidly forming mud. My driver was unamused by the state of the road, and complained of it. The worsening weather was making me uncharacteristically uneasy. Truth be told, the circumstances surrounding my seeking a hiding place for the case initially are still hazy in my mind's eye. My mind could not and cannot make sense of the jumbled mess of memories that was my homeward journey last time, and this journey was exhibiting too many parallels already. I could not shake the feeling of eyes on me, an elusive certainty that I was being watched. With some reluctance, I directed the man to find us some shelter before we were truly marooned out here. The best he could find before sundown was a ruin. It was a roof, at least a partial one, over our heads, and a reasonably dry stable where we could shelter. Still uneasy, I searched the abandoned house. It showed signs of recent occupation, no doubt ruffians who had taken up shelter in one of the recent storms. By the time I returned to my driver, he had lit a fire. I told him to keep watch, and, now satisfied that I would not find myself rudely awakened by intruders, I tried to make myself comfortable and get some sleep. Real civilization would be more comforting than the barn, of course, but misleading in its comfort. I soon realized that thoughts of forty years ago would continue to prey on my mind, and sleep would not be a friend who would visit me this night. 
Our arrival at the Greystripe house the next day was heralded by shouts and cries from the boys. I had little desire to deal with them, but I reminded myself that the ordeal should be worth the reward, just so long as I could get into and explore the private collection sufficiently. To my delight this time, knowing what to expect, I was welcomed into the home with smiles and open arms. The puzzle was presented when asked for, and the boys were delighted, their mother even more so. It was not long before she practically begged I go upstairs to examine the pieces on display and let her know my thoughts. I agreed, of course, and it was in fact an extraordinary collection which I must see again. But my final obstacle ended up being, inevitably, the boys. I had the room to myself for all of a minute, barely enough time to locate the desired item, before the boys came running in. They appeared to be struggling with the concept of the puzzle. Luckily for me, there was a component of the puzzle that required the focus of a strong light source, such as the sun, and I soon had them hurrying back outside. Then it was simply a matter of opening the case, slipping the implement into my cloak's hidden pocket, and leaving with no small amount of haste. When I reached the carriage and informed my driver we would be leaving immediately, he seemed glum at the prospect of rushing off so soon. I resolved at the first opportunity to be rid of him and set about hiring someone more enthusiastic to bring along on ventures such as this. As their personal preferences and opinions of the weather really make no difference whatever, I would be content with quickly and quietly obedient. As I entered the carriage, the boys were working on the puzzle at the other end of the courtyard. It was only a matter of time before they saw us leaving. I ordered the driver to hurry. The grey stripe would notice the missing piece soon. I intended to be over at least several hills by the time they did. The Blackwater Aethercast is produced and performed by Nicholas Jovian. Additional voices by Kayla Thomas. This episode was written by Anita Simon. Beginning and ending music is by Derek and Brandon Fichter. They can be found at dbfichter.bandcamp.com. Today's entertainment was The Wood by H.P. Lovecraft. Find us on Instagram at Baron Blackwater or visit lordblackwater.com to be the featured entertainment. And thanks for listening. We'll leave a light on. <laughs>